News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, for the first time, faced questions in the House of Commons about his connections to the WE Charity, the organization with close ties to his family that would have been paid tens of millions of dollars for a government contract. And more information came to light from key witnesses testifying at a committee. All right, that is Global News anchor Donna Friesen. We're going to talk more about what happened in front of that committee. Global National Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman is here with more. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. All right, so we've got another day here, another development on this We Charity story coming out of Ottawa. So what's going on today? Who's taking the hot seat? That's right. That would be Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who will appear in front of the House Finance Committee to answer questions later this afternoon. Bill Morneau, who, along with the Prime Minister, is under investigation by the Ethics Commissioner uh, over the WE affair. And we know that Mr. Morneau has already uh, apologized, saying that he should have recused himself from cabinet discussions involving WE uh, and that he didn't. Uh, and so expect lots of questions for him this afternoon. Also worth noting that a senior finance department uh, official will also testify today. This is significant because last week we heard from a different bureaucrat that it was finance department officials who first floated the idea of the WE charity as a potential for this program. Uh, so you can expect a lot of questions today about sort of the birth of this whole thing and right. how it how it came about. Okay, so yesterday that same committee heard testimony from the top bureaucrat in the country. What did we learn from that? That's right. So that is uh, Ian Shugart, the clerk of the Privy Council office, the PCO. Uh, a few things came out of Mr. Shugart's testimony that are that are worth noting. He said, as far as he knows, there was no deep dive done into We Charities finances uh, ahead of this deal being granted. He also said uh, that the way he saw it, there was no way that the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister could have not been involved in such a program because of its scope. Uh, and he seemed to be defending the Prime Minister when he talked about how the Prime Minister's or uh, Justin Trudeau's connection with WE was very much in the public domain. People knew about it. It wasn't a secret. Uh, and Ian Shugart said, you know, when you're dealing with conflicts of interest or potential, the perception of a conflict of interest, disclosure is a big part of it. But hey, this was already out there. So he, being Ian Shugart, didn't see a reason why the Prime Minister needed to disclose anything because it was already uh, in the public eye. So a few different strings, obviously, that the right. uh, op- that the MPs, especially the opposition MPs, were, were trying to pull on yesterday. Right. So the committee also heard a little pushback, I guess, from the Public Servants Union. Why is that? What were they saying? Yeah, that, that and that's uh, an important part of the story, too, because over and over again, the government's line on this has been that we, Charity, were the only ones that could have carried this out. The public service was not able to carry this out. The partners that they, you know, normally work with, were, were there was all of this in, in increased stress due to the pandemic. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been feasible for the public service to carry this out. And then yesterday, we heard very clearly from the uh, head of the Public Service for Servants Union, oh, hey, actually, they totally could have carried out this program. He, uh, uh, Chris Aylward was very clear saying that, you know, they're adaptable. They uh, look at all of the, he pointed to the CERB as an example, how so many right. people, you know, put up their hands to get the CERB out and rolling. He said that they definitely could have handled uh, this program. And he made the point uh, that had the public servants been tasked with doing this, students would already be, you know, involved in this program and it would be off the ground because that's a whole other part of this here is that it's here we are in late July, if we can say that on the 
what is it, 20 seconds today, oh, and this boy. program still hasn't started. And, you know, students, it's students who are, who are being affected. Yeah, no kidding. They're ready to go back to school. Okay, Abigail, thank you so much. Thanks. I think among the young folks, I would call it uh, the invincibility factor. I I think uh, young folks, I was young once, uh, you know, I think at a certain age, you think you can get away with anything that, you know, you're you're basically uh, able to, you know, to, you know, deal with anything that comes and there won't really be any uh, major uh, consequences. Oh, man, that is so true, isn't it? That is Deputy Chief Public Health Officer of Canada, Dr. Howard Njew. We're seeing a really troubling spike in the number of cases of COVID-19 among young people. It is the driver for the rise in the number of cases that we have seen, particularly here in BC. So we wanted to talk more about this. We wanted to talk about how we can track how widely young people are spreading COVID-19. So joining us now is Art Poon, Associate Professor in Virus Evolution and Bioinformatics at Western University. Art, thank you so much for being here. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, first of all, fascinating area of expertise. So this is molecular epidemiology. How is that different from just general epidemiology? So in classic epidemiology, uh, we would use contact tracing to look at how cases are related in space and time. Like if uh, people have been to the same location uh, and if they, uh, if someone was infected around the same time that uh, someone uh, started their infection. With molecular epidemiology, we try to use the um, genetic signature of the virus, um, so we sequence the virus genome, look at how they're related, and then use that to reconstruct uh, how their um, uh, how the transmission may have occurred uh, back in time uh, by analyzing those data on a computer. Okay, so then what are you doing with the information that we have coming in right now about young people and the virus? So um, there's genome sequence data rapidly accumulating for SARS-CoV-2 uh, around the world, and uh, one, well, something that we can do with those data is to fit a model of um, the role of uh, people in different age groups uh, in uh, having onward transmission to other people. Um, So as long as we have enough information on uh, virus genomes to see how those infections are related and we have enough information about age um, and other stuff like uh, location and time, uh, we can try to fit a model to estimate uh, what the role of different age groups are. Okay, that's interesting. So does this virus spread differently in different age groups? Um, it depends on uh, whether, uh, what you mean by spreading differently. Uh, does it spread certainly, more rapidly? Certainly, uh, younger it... people tend to be uh, uh, less symptomatic uh, than, than older people uh, right. because we, we, don't, uh, um, we don't mount as vigorous an immune response as we get older. Interesting. So I was wondering, is it, does it mean because they're less symptomatic and like show fewer symptoms, does it spread faster among younger people? Is it, are we, is it slower in older people? Uh, I think that for any, uh, irrespective of your age, if you're not aware of your uh, infection status, um, you know, people may be less uh, likely to take precautions. Uh, that, that means that's why, uh, Wearing a face mask, uh, wearing a face mask in uh, all circumstances is uh, important. Right. So, is it does it mutate differently in younger people then because they are more asymptomatic? Um, there's no reason to expect that uh, to happen for for the virus. Um, so, 
if the if the virus does uh, adapt to a person's immune response, uh, the mutations that it has to uh, uh, accumulate uh, often uh, break something in the virus. So just just to escape the immune system, uh, the virus will uh, frequently have to uh, uh, sacrifice something uh, so that it won't grow as effectively. So there's no reason to expect that um, a virus in a person who is able to mount a vigorous immune response uh, would then go on to become uh, some sort of uh, quote-unquote super virus. Right. Okay. So then what do you think, Art, about what is going on right now? Like, clearly we're seeing more cases in younger people. It is spreading now because of that. What, what is your assessment of what's happening? Well, um, so not being a uh, public health expert, I mean, I'm more of a molecular epi person, uh, I think that... Uh, when, if people, uh, particularly young people, are going to indoor venues and uh, large crowds and speaking loudly so they're generating lots of aerosols, mm. then that's a high transmission rate, uh, risk environment. And uh, if that's occurring more frequently, then that uh, may be one of the driving factors behind what we're observing, that uh, we have a slight uptick uh, in case count uh, in different provinces in Canada. And that seems to affect uh, younger age groups uh, uh, more, more frequently. Are we learning a lot right now? Like for your line of work, is this also a fascinating time? I think every line of work in science is just going bonkers right now. It's, it's sort of an all-hands-on-deck situation. Um, so we're seeing more data accumulate than ever imaginable before. And uh, everyone's having to innovate uh, constantly. So, yeah, it's a kind of exciting and, uh, um, you know, exhilarating time to be uh, in science. Right. So much, right, information coming your way. Art, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much. There have been some beautiful pictures of the comet Neowise in the last week or so. I haven't been lucky enough to see it, but I know plenty of other people have. And if you still want to try to catch a glimpse of it, your best bet essentially is tonight. And then after that, uh, you probably won't be around because it won't be around for 6,800 years. So yeah, if you want to get a good look at it, uh, tonight is probably your last best chance. Nikki Reitmeyer talks to us about why this comet had so many stargazing people and scientists talking. There is a new comet somewhere out there above us tonight. It is the brightest in the skies of the Northern Hemisphere for a quarter of a century. It's called, as you may know, Comet Neowise, after a NASA telescope that first spotted it in March. It'll be around for a few more days, and if you don't manage to see it this time around, there's always next time in about 7,000 years. Comet Neowise. It's been catching the eye of stargazers and scientists all around the world. But where did it come from? And how much longer will you be able to catch a glimpse? As you might have heard in the news, this three-mile-wide comet is passing through the night sky this month. And you'll be able to look up and see it with binoculars, telescopes, and if you're lucky, even the naked eye. Joy Ng is the host of NASA Science Live. Comet Neowise was first discovered in March of this year, and it's been putting on a grand show. It's covered in soot left over from the formation of our solar system about 4.6 billion years ago. And as comets orbit close to the sun, they heat up and spew gases and dust in a glowing head. And this material is what forms the tail that you see stretching across the sky. 
But how was Comet Neowise first discovered, and why is it called Neowise anyways? Joe Massaro is the Neowise Deputy Principal Investigator from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So Comet Neowise was first picked up by the Neowise Survey at the end of March. So Neowise is an acronym that stands for the Near-Earth Object Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. And this is an infrared space telescope orbiting the Earth in the low Earth orbit, constantly scanning the sky in the thermal infrared, looking for asteroids and comets that come close to the Earth. And so this comet was first picked up at the end of March as part of our automated processing. And so as the data came in, it goes through an automated system that tries to identify moving objects and sends it to our team to review. And so as part of that review, we were looking at it and said, hey, this looks like a comet. We can see a clear fuzzy cloud around it. And so we reported that to the Minor Planet Center saying, here's a new object and it looks to be cometary. Now, right after we discovered it, we saw that it was going to have a close pass with the sun around July 3rd and that there was a chance that it could become very bright. And so we were really crossing our fingers and we got really lucky that it turned out to be a spectacular sight. So what makes this comet so unique? The fact that we can see it is really what makes it unique. Emily Kramer is the co-investigator on the Neowise science team. It's quite rare for a comet to be bright enough that we can see it with the naked eye or even with just binoculars. Uh, the last time we had a comet that was this bright was Comet Hale-Bopp back in 1995 and 1996. So it's been quite a while and it's exciting to be able to see this one in, in this way now. If you want to catch a glimpse of Neowise, try to get away from the city lights. Just after sunset, look below the Big Dipper in the northwest part of the sky. You'll be able to see it better with binoculars or a small telescope. But if you do want to see it, you'll have to act soon. Wednesday, July 22nd, this is the closest Neowise will get to planet Earth, just a mere 64 million miles away. And it'll only get further away from now on through the rest of the month. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Oh, I'd love to catch a glimpse of Nia Wise. Nikki Reitmeyer is with us now. What is this fascination we have, Nikki? Oh, this fascination with space. I know yes. that you're a big space junkie as well. I think there's just something so cool with being able to look off into the night sky and think, wow, it goes on just forever into, you know, this this darkness, this unknown. So and mysterious. When we, yeah, when we catch a glimpse of something that comes close to us, you know, be it 64 million miles away, kind of close, but when a comet like Neowise comes close, it's kind of cool to think of our interaction with space and it, it becomes something I think that's a little bit easier to to maybe visualize, something a little yes. bit less less abstract. Have you seen, I, oh, sorry, no. you already said you haven't seen it. I yeah, have not. Neither. I would like to, I'd city. love to be it's able hard. to do that, but of course, and not only that, I go to bed before the sun is down. Well, so <laughs> yeah, I guess that's <laughs> it too, right? So I'd have to like set my alarm, get up in the middle of the night maybe to check out Neowise. Maybe when you wake up in the morning, you'd have a chance of being able to see Neil More likely, at some point. yes. Hey, uh, interesting little fact. On this day in space history, so on this day in 1972, the Russian space probe Vernera 8 landed on Venus. And we actually learned some really fascinating information about Venus that we didn't previously know. It took about 117 days to get to Venus. And when it got there, it only lasted for about... 50 minutes on the surface of Venus. Really, really harsh conditions. If you recall some of that high school stuff that you learned about yes. the planet visit, Venus, it has that atmospheric pressure, which is 92 times what we feel here on Earth. So this would be the equivalent of basically being about 
3,000 feet underneath the sea, that kind Oof. of pressure. And on top of that, it also has an incredibly hot surface with a mean temperature of 464 degrees Celsius. So this poor little probe only lasted 50 minutes on the planet oh. Venus. However, it learned some really interesting information about, about the atmosphere. So as you know, Venus is covered in this really thick, sort of toxic cloud, this thick atmosphere. However, what we learned was the clouds around it actually hover at a very high altitude. And then once you get closer to the surface, it actually clears out quite a bit. So that was huh. some of the sig significant information I tell that you. has since made it into many high school textbooks. I was going to say the 70s, man. They were all about space exploration. Nikki, thank you. Thanks. So we were just talking with Vaughn Palmer about this, about restaurants and bars and the industry itself. We know they're having so much trouble just staying afloat in this COVID-19 pandemic. But now on top of that, you have this issue of some of them trying to reopen, some of them playing by the rules, a few of them not causing problems. So how do we make this work? So joining us now to talk more about this is Jeff Guinard, who's the, from the Alliance of Beverage Serving Licensees. Jeff, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. I can imagine this must be such a tough time for your industry. Yeah, it's really challenging. And um, I don't want anybody to have the impression that just because bars and restaurants are open and you, you see people going in that uh, these places are you know, extremely busy or they're, they're making profit. Uh, everybody's had to reduce their capacity to um, accommodate the, the necessary social distancing and maximum group sizes. And uh, our, our stats show that about two-thirds of operators out there right now are not um, out of the red yet. They're still losing money every day and they're they're open to keep people employed and provide service, but it's it's really tough out there. Yeah, what do you think though when you hear stories of places that are not following the rules, that are not having social distancing and, you know, you see the pictures even on social media? Yeah, for sure. So I've been out uh, far past my bedtime on Granville Street and Yaletown here in Vancouver and uh, I have to say the vast majority of operators are doing an incredible job and during extremely difficult circumstances. But I want to give people the impression that the rules are not being followed. Uh, I've been out there and I promise you that they, they are. Um, what is actually happening in some cases is, especially later in the evenings, you find some customers seem to uh, think that alcohol protects them from the coronavirus oh, or boy. they forget about the rules. And uh, a lot of our operators are having to spend a tremendous amount of time reminding patrons you cannot mingle between tables. And I know you're excited to see your friends. You know, we've all been locked down during this period and we want to go out again. But uh, you have to abide by the rules and you can't forget just because it's, it's past midnight. Um, and uh, even when, you know, I've been to some establishments where they have uh, markers on the exterior, if there happens to be a line at a, at a club or something, which is operating more like a lounge than a nightclub. There's no real nightclubs operating. But you can see the markers on, on the sidewalk where you have to stand the bouncer has to go up and down the line repeatedly, reminding people to stay distant. Um, and we so need having, our patrons. So they're having to enforce this instead, right? So I can imagine how that would be very challenging because at some point people who've been drinking really don't want to listen to you. Yeah, I mean, generally patrons are pretty good. Uh, every once in a while I uh, have to deal with it. But honestly, we're, we're just ejecting people who don't follow the rules. I mean, uh, this is a state of emergency still. This is a pandemic and uh, no business owner is going to let someone in who could you know, is already not listening to them and how they should behave. Uh, so we, we are all united in our, our desire to operate responsibly in this period. Um, so yeah, I think the onus is on customers, and I'm, I'm not sure why uh, any, or how anybody could claim they're not aware of the rules. I mean, every single nightclub, restaurant, bar, etc., has them posted, so they're available online, they've been articulated repeatedly by Dr. Bonnie Henry, a provincial health officer. Uh, so yeah, we really need our patrons to, to join us in the right. fight. My concern long-term about this is, um, it, you know, the 
at a, a bar or restaurant, at least we have staff who can tell you and remind you to, to abide by the rules. You see the spike in cases that's happening with public gatherings and suddenly if a few dozen people operating or um, gathering together in parks and uh, that's clearly offside, right? And no one's enforcing that, but you shouldn't have to enforce that. We should be able to rely on the personal sense of responsibility from British Columbians uh, to not have those sorts well, of gatherings. Should. You should, yeah, and yet that doesn't. We know that's not happening, right? Uh, not sufficiently, no, and that that's frustrating. I think that's uh, that's a challenge. So then, Jeff, what would help at this point? You, you know, I'm sure this is a very stressful time for bars and restaurants. What would help? Do you need more rules? Do you need more, do you, or do you just need people to pay attention? Yeah, I don't think that having additional rules in the bars is helpful. I mean, um, perhaps some clear guidelines around contact tracing, so we can you know take everybody's information in cases an outbreak. We can. You know, track back a little bit easier. Uh, but ultimately, it's up to British Columbians. Uh, if you want these these establishments to survive, they have to abide by the rules. Um, and if you ask a restaurant or bar what they actually need, it comes down a lot of times to uh, like a working capital grant or making sure we can extend the federal support, things like the wage subsidy. And uh, that's actually more vital to their business uh, in the long term because it's, uh, they're, they're massively impacted financially by this. And um, we, we think that, well, in our stats, about 50% of uh, restaurants and bars out there don't know if they're going to even make it the next couple of months financially. So that's, that's right. the big concern. And, uh, but from the public perspective and just from consumer safety, yeah, we need, we need our patrons to pay more attention. And I hate to say it, but it's in a lot of cases that our younger patrons are coming in as well. Um, that, uh, that seem to have forgotten the rules in some cases. So the spiking cases should be a, a real warning sign to folks. Uh, we're going to keep doing everything we can and we need British Columbians to step up and help us in it. All right. We will put that message out there. Jeff, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Have a wonderful morning. You know, concerns first started to be heightened recently around COVID-19 when we heard about the number of cases rising in Kelowna. We now know there's something like, what, 60 cases and counting of COVID-19 that have been connected to exposures that have been happening in Kelowna earlier this month. Some businesses in that community are once again being forced to close their doors, struggling. And they've been struggling already for months. So I'm sure it's had quite an impact. And that's why we wanted to talk with the mayor of Kelowna about that. So Colin Basrin joins us now, the mayor of Kelowna. Thank you very much for being here. No problem. Thank you very much for having me on. What kind of an impact has this had, this news of this, you know, cluster of cases in Kelowna? Well, I guess it depends who you talk to. Uh, Certainly uh, from a local perspective, um, it's had an impact, particularly local business owners who have uh, in some instances seen uh, a reduction of uh, shoppers and people uh, coming to visit their stores, uh, people choosing to uh, be uh, more cautious, similar to their, they were in phase two and uh, even before that. Um, but then uh, you, you, know, you talk to some residents as well who have uh, and continue to see an influx of visitors from elsewhere um, and uh, who are upset that we continue to see visitors to our community wondering why, um, you know, city council, although we don't really have a, a lot of control over this per se, um, and, and, and then in particular questions to Dr. Bonnie Henry as to why she's continuing to allow uh, visitors from within the province uh, as well as from uh, out of province. And, uh, and so there's just, um, yeah, a lot of questions and, and frustration by some. And, uh, and then others understand that, uh, you know, we're trying to walk a line here between, uh, obviously, first and foremost, this is a healthcare care uh, crisis, but also uh, an economic one as well. And that uh, there are a lot of people in our community who are tourism dependent, 
uh, to keep a roof, roof over their heads and then food on the table. So uh, I think Dr. Bonnie Henry thus far has done a good job of walking that line. Um, and she's going to continue to monitor this situation and, and, and go from there. But it does sound like that's a tough one for your office, for City Hall, to deal with. I'm sure you're getting lots of phone calls about this. Well, like I say, it's, it's tough for everybody. I don't uh, envy Dr. Henry at all. And, um, and so, yes, we're getting lots of calls, but we're also, again, um, being asked by some business owners to, you know, stay the course. So we're hearing everything from we're doing too much to we're not doing enough. And uh, again, right. it's trying to strike a balance. So it's we're down if we do and down if we don't. Now, what about the private gatherings, uh, Mayor Basserin? Because that obviously was flagged as a concern as well, that there have been parties, gatherings, houseboats. Do you share a concern for that? Oh, absolutely. And uh I think uh, there's, um, you know, I guess my message to your listeners, particularly those who plan to visit here, is, is a couple of things. Is when you're coming to visit Kelowna, um, don't come here to make new friends. Uh, come here to visit the friends that you specifically had planned on uh, spending time with. Know who's in your circle, but don't expand it beyond that. Um, and, and act as if this is your home too. So please don't come here and, 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 and party without a care in the world and pretend like this is a, a COVID-free bubble, which we know now it's not. Um, and also just assume that if you are coming here, that the, uh, the party or the group of people next to you, somebody in that group has it. So take the necessary precautions um, that you would if that was in fact the case. And, uh, and I think that if we do those things and that the people visiting here um, act in a responsible manner and adhere to the orders and, and recommendations of Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, I think that we can have a good summer, uh, not a normal summer, certainly, but we can have a good summer where we can balance the, uh, the rights uh, of mm-hmm. our residents as well as those who really want to spend some time here. So you want people to treat their trip to Kelowna as they would treat their own neighborhood? Absolutely, 100%. And what we found is I think um, most visitors have done that, um, but not everybody. And I think we've seen the results of that uh, in light of this recent outbreak. And so if we can all, um, I guess uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry continues to say, use your travel manners. Uh, If we do that, um, this should be fine. But if we don't, uh, we will likely have to go back to phase two potentially. uh, And that's something that nobody wants. Well, Mayor Bastron, thank you very much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time. That is Colin Bastron, the mayor of Kelowna, giving a message to people out there that if you are going to go on a holiday or a trip to Kelowna, treat it as you would your own home. Stick to your circle. Don't go up there to make new friends. And listen, that is not something that a tourist hotbed wants to say to people, but they have to. There's something like 60 cases of COVID-19 now connected to exposures in Kelowna. Large gatherings parties, get-togethers. So they have to put that message out this morning about how tough it is right now for restaurants, bars, nightclubs to navigate what's happening with COVID-19. There are calls for tougher rules, more inspections, crackdown. We heard from the Alliance of Beverage Licensees saying, though, they need help from young people. They want more younger people to follow the rules. To talk more about all of this, Ian Tossenson joins us now, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Hi, Ian. Hey, Cindy, how are you doing? I am good, thank you. So what do you think? Does the industry need more rules? Because it sounds like Dr. Uh, Bonnie Henry's getting ready for that this week. I think there's, yeah, I think there's sort of three things here. I think, number one, uh, we're going to try to institute with the government a uh, social influencing campaign to the sort of younger g- demographic that's you know, having a real trouble trying to, trying to get their heads around you know, this freedom and the fact that we still have a, a, an awfully serious pandemic around 
uh, in this world, and it's really serious. And so that's one side. The other side is we've got a group of uh, 60 restaurants, which were our advisory group, who basically wrote the opening plans, uh, which I think is a world-class plan. And we're going to go back to them in the next couple of days and say, what else can we do here? I think it's um, we need to tighten up and make sure that our protocols are absolutely being followed. They're really good protocols. Um, you know, we were just talking to a restaurant group this morning. They take the temperature of their staff. They do a declaration on every shift. So we can tighten this up ourselves. We've got way too much to lose, Simi, uh, yeah. in an industry right now that is just rocked financially. And the future is, is not that bright right now. And if we don't do this right, um, we've got even bigger problems. So there's a lot at stake here. Yeah, I know. And that's what I was thinking, too. And you absolutely nailed it there. What I'm thinking, you know, we've got these anecdotal stories. We just had a caller tell us about a downtown restaurant that she went to that, yes, when she went in, it was very nice. They had, you know, spaced out. They had notes on the table saying that this table's empty. But as the place started to fill up, they started taking those off the tables and let people sit there. So it, would it not behoove restaurants to make sure they're also following the rules? That's And that story... If it's true, well, I'm sure it is true, but you know, it, that's so wrong. And that is so what we don't stand for. And honest, you know, if any of your listeners want to get a hold of us, bcrfa.com, and, and, and point out the restaurants that they don't feel comfortable with, we'll deal with it. We'll make sure that WorkSafe goes in and, and counsels that restaurant. Good. I believe that 99% of the restaurants are trying to do a good job. But we'll out any restaurant, and I'll, I'll be the first person to say, close it down if they're putting anybody at risk here, because it's not just their patrons. It's an entire $15 billion industry with 200,000 people. It's way, way, way too important to have a few renegades that decide that for the convenience of some short-term gains, they don't mm-hmm. want to play by the rules. So, so where can people get a hold of you then? Like, So where do they email? Do they like, What do they do? Yeah, so uh, why don't you email me at, or just info at bcrfa.com. bcrfa.com. Info and at, I okay. I guarantee you we'll get back to you and we'll deal with it. And I don't, I don't out people for the sake of outing them, please, but not you, but your listeners. Yes. Um, but we'll certainly, you know, it's in our best interest to hear from people and how we can be better. We definitely want to make sure that we, uh, we, we go forward, not backwards. So true. Listen, Ian, thank you so much for that. That's super helpful. Thanks, Simi. Have a good day. You too. That's Ian Tossenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. So you heard him. If you're somewhere and you see the rules not being followed, if you're at a restaurant or a bar or something like that, email them and tell them because it behooves the entire industry to make sure those rules are being followed. It's a big concern for them right now. It has been one of the most difficult situations around this COVID-19 pandemic. The fact that it has forced the isolation of so many loved ones who are in a long-term care home, just being able to visit them, celebrate birthdays with them, anniversaries, occasions, just being able to regularly visit them. All of that has gone by the wayside and we worry about those loved ones. So it's been, there's been a high priority to finding out some kind of way to make those visits happen again. So there is a new program that is hoping to work towards that. Uh, let's talk more about it. Nikki Reitmeyer is with us this morning. Hi, Nikki. 
Hi, Simi. Yeah, this comes at a great relief to families who so desperately want a better way to visit their loved ones who are in care homes. So a statement went out that reads, in response to changes announced last month by the Provincial Health Officer on Visitations and Long-Term Care and Assisted Living, Safe Care BC, in collaboration with Family Caregivers of British Columbia, has developed an online COVID-19 orientation for families and friends wanting to support loved ones in care. So essentially, what this means is they're creating a program that can help you get the tools that you need to be able to visit your loved one uh, with better competency. So it goes on to say to address concerns of safety for residents and workers, as well as friends and family of those in care, those people would become COVID competent, it reads. All yeah, right. so it says that you take this easy-to-access orientation, you print off a record of compliance, and then you complete a site-specific safety orientation at the care home or assisted living residence. Okay, we're going to find out more about this right now. Thanks for letting us know about it, Nikki. Mm-hmm. That is our Nikki Wrightmeyer. So yeah, what are the details? How do you become COVID competent? For more on this now, we're joined by Jen Lyle, who is the CEO of Safe Care BC. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. What does it mean to become COVID competent? Yeah, well, really what we're doing with these modules is we're helping empower family members and friends of those who have loved ones in long-term care to be safe when they're coming on site to support their loved one. And so our goal with this is really to provide anybody who's going into long-term care or assisted living with sort of a basic understanding of the safety precautions required to help avoid uh, accidentally introducing COVID-19 into a care home or an assisted living setting. And so what that does is people coming in will then be able to do their site-specific safety orientation and um, they'll just be able to be safer in in their practices when they're coming in to support their loved one. Okay, so this kind of standardizes, like are some care homes already doing this, but is this just going to standardize it? Yeah, so we do have care homes that have been welcoming family members back into uh, the care home. And in in many cases, there's been instances where we have still had essential visits coming in to long-term care throughout this period. But what it does is it does provide that standardization. um, And it also helps uh, people who are family members or friends to understand not just the precautions they need to take when they're going into a care home, for example, but things that they can actually do in their day-to-day life to keep themselves safe. Right. Okay. So what, what, can you give us an example of what some of these um, things are that people need to know about? Sure. So obviously the thing that's a lot, that's top of mind for a lot of people when you're going into long-term care these days is the need to um, practice things like physical distancing, to do things like proper hand hygiene. I know most people think, yeah, yeah, I know how to wash my hands, but uh, you know, there's some important steps that need to be taken. Also things around PPE donning and doffing. And then on understanding too, sort of the nuances around how COVID-19 can spread and what people can do to reduce the risk of exposure, not just when they're walking into a care home, but also too in the community. Because again, we know that there's only one way that COVID-19 gets into a long-term care home and that's through the front door. So there's a bunch of different steps people can take. And the goal of these modules is to help provide people with that baseline understanding so that they're empowered to be safe when they're going in to support their loved one. Right. So there's no excuses. There's information there and you have to go through those modules before you can walk in that front door. Well, right now what we're saying is this is a voluntary thing. So we're not saying that you have to take these modules, but it's a tool out there. And we know that care homes are really struggling with staffing shortages. We know that family members are really eager to get back in to support their loved ones. So that's why partnering with Family Caregivers of BC made so much sense so that we can get this out there and put the information in the hands of those who need it. Ah, okay. So you would like a lot of people to take this. 
I would love a lot of people to take okay. this. Okay. <laughs> so tell me again, so how long does it take? Is it overly complicated? Like, is it easy to find? It's, it's super short. We've designed it to that you can pick it up, stop and start it as you need to. So it's available on the safecarebclearningspace.ca. Um, right now, with the funding from Family Caregivers of British Columbia, we're able to offer it for free for the first 5,000 people who sign up. And we're hoping that we'll be able to secure more funding in the future. Um, but um, you just go on to safecarebclearningspace.ca. The only thing you need is an email address. Then you can enroll in the course, and it's just called COVID-19 Social Visitation Essentials, and it's live. All right. We will definitely recommend that. Jen, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. That is so important to know. That's Jen Lyle, Safe Care BC CEO. So take that module, get that online orientation done so that you can become COVID competent. It will go a long way towards keeping people in long-term care homes safe. We've been talking a lot this morning about bars, restaurants, nightclubs, and the concern that things are perhaps not as like rule following as they should be when it comes to preventing COVID-19 there. There have been calls for the rules to be tougher. Dr. Bonnie Henry is likely to address that uh, sometime this week. Uh, but the industry itself is saying we need everybody to buy in. I mean, we talked to Ian Tossenson about that from the Restaurant and Food Services Association. And they said, listen, if you're a customer and you go into one of these establishments and you look around and you see that the rules are not being followed, they want you to tell them so that they can follow up with that restaurant because it behooves the industry right now to make sure the rules are being followed because they need to make sure they are seen as upholding the rules so that the industry can get back on its feet. So what about WorkSafe BC's role in all of this? Well, joining us now is Al Johnson, the head of prevention services at WorkSafe BC. Al, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. Good morning, Simi. Have you been hearing complaints from people about establishments, bars, nightclubs, restaurants that aren't following the rules? We have had some complaints, certainly some people calling our information line that's available to call 24-7 to let us know what's going on out there. We've heard that, um, you know, as things get busier, um, some of the employers out there are having challenges being true to their plans. Okay, so then what happens when somebody does call your hotline? So, you know, we started uh, weeks ago now, and we've done over 1,200 inspections in restaurants alone. Um, and what we're finding is that for the most part, employers are following the guidelines, the best practices. They've got COVID safety plans in place. They've worked with their own workers to develop those plans. So that's a good piece of information. That's a good, solid start. Um, what's now is happening as things get a little busier and, and as the public gets a little more familiar with going out and wanting to be in those establishments, then the employers are having some challenges staying true to those plans, making sure that they're vigilant and those plans are working. And so what we're doing now is um, we, are, we are trying to address that by making sure that those plans are being tweaked if they need to be tweaked or changed or modified. They are dynamic. They should be fluid. Um, they've learned some some practices that worked and some that didn't work so well, so they can make improvements there. But we're really wanting to make sure that they're staying vigilant to what they need right. to do. Are enough inspections being done, though? 
we are doing a lot of inspections. We obviously can't be everywhere, nor, nor do we need to be really. It's a matter of employers know what needs to happen. It's their obligation to keep workplaces healthy and safe and prevent um, uh, their, their workers from being exposed to hazards on the job, including COVID. Um, and, and so they're working hard to do that. And, and we're out there to, to hold them accountable to that. Uh, when, a, when a concern is expressed to our information line, when a complaint comes in, we follow up on those to make sure that there is closure to that issue, if you will. Um, and, and again, we just need to continue to uh, message through the associations, like right. you mentioned earlier, through our own website and through our own resources, that this is something employers cannot relax on. Now, we've heard from one restaurant anonymously that, you know, suggested to us, well, listen, it's not our fault. WorkSafe BC isn't doing enough. They're not enforcing the rules. Is it your job to enforce the rules or do you think the onus is on these restaurants to make sure they're following the rules? So the onus is always on the employer. The obligation under our act and regulation is the employer has that responsibility and obligation to protect their workers in the workplace from hazards and from risks. Uh, and that applies to COVID. We're out there to keep them accountable to that and hold them to that obligation. Um, in this particular case, with COVID and, and everything that's going on out there, there's a dual role between the regulators. We certainly, WorkSafe BC certainly is there with our mandate to protect workers in the workplace, and then public health is there to protect the public in those establishments and in public places. So we work closely with public health, uh, but there is certainly an overlap and a, and and a a line of uh, demarcation, if you will. Are there more rules coming this week? Dr. Henry has suggested that there might be. I am not sure, to be honest with you, uh, whether there will be additional uh, orders or, or, or directives from public health regarding those establishments. If there are, then those will be reflected on our website and the guidelines that have been created and the best practices that are there and available. And so people can see those directly. If, there are the, if those do come to be, they can see them directly from public health. They can also see them reflected on our website. Where do you think the disconnect is, Al, or where the problem is? We're getting these outbreaks. Are people not paying attention? Like, where do you think this is coming from? I think it's multi-dynamic, uh, really. There's a lot of factors at play. People, people, you know, it's been a long time dealing with COVID. People have felt constricted. I think just people want to get out and socialize and want to be like it used to be, but, but it's not like that anymore. And so this new normal people need to get used to. There are rules, quote-unquote, rules in place and protocols in place, and, and people, I think, understand those and know what they are. Um, but sometimes, especially where there where there's worker and and public overlap in a workplace, uh, things can get relaxed a little bit. And so again, our message is be true to your plans, ensure that your plans are working for that particular establishment, the workers and the employer, and uh, reassess if you need to, uh, and be vigilant. Stay the course. Let's keep these plans. Let's keep these protocols in practice. All right. So once again, what is that hotline, Mel? Uh, our hotline number is available on our website. Okay. It's, uh, um, it's available 24-7, and uh, I just, off the top of my head, don't, don't worry about the it. number. So they should just go to WorkSafeBC, and if they you know file that, call, give them a call on that hotline number that's on the WorkSafeBC website, and you do respond to those. We certainly do. Okay, good to know. Al, thank the, you. The, the number is one 621 7233 Oh, you were fast. Okay, thanks, Al.
Okay, you bet. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, for the first time, faced questions in the House of Commons about his connections to the WE Charity, the organization with close ties to his family that would have been paid tens of millions of dollars for a government contract. And more information came to light from key witnesses testifying at a committee. All right, that is Global News anchor Donna Friesen. We're going to talk more about what happened in front of that committee. Global National Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman is here with more. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. All right, so we've got another day here, another development on this We Charity story coming out of Ottawa. So what's going on today? Who's taking the hot seat? That's right. That would be Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who will appear in front of the House Finance Committee to answer questions later this afternoon. Bill Morneau, who, along with the Prime Minister, is under investigation by the Ethics Commissioner uh, over the WE affair. And we know that Mr. Morneau has already uh, apologized, saying that he should have recused himself from cabinet discussions involving WE uh, and that he didn't. Uh, and so expect lots of questions for him this afternoon. Also worth noting that a senior Finance Department uh, official will also testify today. This is significant because last week we heard from a different bureaucrat that it was Finance Department officials who first floated the idea of the WE Charity as a potential for this program. Uh, so you can expect a lot of questions today about sort of the birth of this whole thing and right. how it how it came about. Okay, so yesterday that same committee heard testimony from the top bureaucrat in the country. What did we learn from that? That's right. So that is uh, Ian Shugart, the clerk of the Privy Council office, the PCO. Uh, a few things came out of Mr. Shugart's testimony that are that are worth noting. He said, as far as he knows, there was no deep dive done into We Charity's finances uh, ahead of this deal being granted. He also said uh, that the way he saw it, there was no way that the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister could have not been involved in such a program because of its scope. Uh, and he seemed to be defending the prime minister when he talked about how the prime minister's or uh, Justin Trudeau's connection with we was very much in the public domain. People knew about it. It wasn't a secret. Uh, and Ian Shugart said, you know, when you're dealing with conflicts of interest or potential, the perception of a conflict of interest, disclosure is a big part of it. But hey, this was already out there. So he, being Ian Shugart, didn't see a reason why the prime minister needed to disclose anything because it was already uh, in the public eye. So a few different strings obviously that the right. uh, op- that the MPs especially the opposition MPs were were trying to pull on yesterday right so the committee also heard a little pushback I guess from the public servants union why is that what were they saying? Yeah, that, that, and that's uh, an important part of the story, too, because over and over again, the government's line on this has been that we, Charity, were the only ones that could have carried this out. The public service was not able to carry this out. The partners that they, you know, normally work with were, were there was all of this in, in, increased stress due to the pandemic. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been feasible for the public service to carry this out. And then yesterday we heard very clearly from the uh, head of the public service for servants union, oh, hey, actually, they totally could have carried out this program. He, Chris uh, uh, Aylward was very clear saying that, you know, they're adaptable. They uh, look at all of the, he pointed to the CERB as an example, how so many right. people, you know, put up their hands to get the CERB out and rolling. He said that they definitely could have handled uh, this program. And he made the point uh, that had the public servants been tasked with doing this, students would already be, you know, involved in this program and it would be off the ground because that's a whole other part of this here is that it's here we are in late July, if we can say that on the what is it 20 seconds today oh, and this boy. program still hasn't started and you know students it's students who are who are being affected yeah no kidding they're ready to go back to school okay abigail thank you so much thanks this is mornings with simi 
I think among the young folks, I would call it uh, the invincibility factor. I, I think uh, young folks, I was young once, uh, you know, I think at a certain age, you think you can get away with anything, that, you know, you're, you're basically uh, able to, you know, to, you know, deal with anything that comes and there won't really be any uh, major uh, consequences. Oh, man, that is so true, isn't it? That is Deputy Chief Public Health Officer of Canada, Dr. Howard Njew. We're seeing a really troubling spike in the number of cases of COVID-19 among young people. It is the driver for the rise in the number of cases that we have seen, particularly here in BC. So we wanted to talk more about this. We wanted to talk about how we can track how widely young people are spreading COVID-19. So joining us now is Art Poon, Associate Professor in Virus Evolution and Bioinformatics at Western University. Art, thank you so much for being here. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, first of all, fascinating area of expertise. So this is molecular epidemiology. How is that different from just general epidemiology? So in classic epidemiology, uh, we would use contact tracing to look at how cases are related in space and time. Like if uh, people have been to the same location uh, and if, they, uh, if someone was infected around the same time that uh, someone uh, started their infection. With molecular epidemiology, we try to use the um, genetic signature of the virus, um, so we sequence the virus genome, look at how they're related, and then use that to reconstruct uh, how their um, uh, how the transmission may have occurred uh, back in time uh, by analyzing those data on a computer. Okay, so then what are you doing with the information that we have coming in right now about young people and the virus? So um, there's genome sequence data rapidly accumulating for SARS-CoV-2 uh, around the world, and uh, one, well, something that we can do with those data is to fit a model of um, the role of uh, people in different age groups uh, in uh, having onward transmission to other people. Um, so as long as we have enough information on uh, virus genomes to see how those infections are related and we have enough information about age um, and other stuff like uh, location and time, uh, we can try to fit a model to estimate uh, what the role of different age groups are. Okay, that's interesting. So does this virus spread differently in different age groups? Um, it depends on uh, whether, uh, what you mean by spreading differently. Uh, does it spread certainly, more rapidly? Certainly, uh, younger it... people tend to be uh, uh, less symptomatic uh, than, than older people uh, right. because we, we, don't, uh, um, we don't mount as vigorous an immune response as we get older. Interesting. So I was wondering, is it, does it mean because they're less symptomatic and like show fewer symptoms, does it spread faster among younger people? Is it, are we, is it slower in older people? Uh, I think that for any, uh, irrespective of your age, if you're not aware of your uh, infection status, um, you know, people may be less uh, likely to take precautions. Uh, that, that means that's why, uh, Wearing a face mask, uh, wearing a face mask in uh, all circumstances is uh, important. Right. So, is it does it mutate differently in younger people then because they are more asymptomatic? Um, there's no reason to expect that uh, to happen for for the virus. Um, so, if the if the virus does uh, adapt to a person's immune response, 
the mutations that it has to uh, uh, accumulate uh, often uh, break something in the virus. So just, just to escape the immune system, uh, the virus will uh, frequently have to uh, uh, sacrifice something uh, so that it won't grow as effectively. So there's no reason to expect that um, a virus in a person who is able to mount a vigorous immune response uh, would then go on to become uh, some sort of uh, quote-unquote super virus. Right. Okay. So then what do you think, Art, about what is going on right now? Like, clearly we're seeing more cases in younger people. It is spreading now because of that. What, what is your assessment of what's happening? Well, um, so not being a uh, public health expert, I mean, I'm more of a molecular epi person, uh, I think that uh, when, if people, uh, particularly young people, are going to indoor venues and uh, large crowds and speaking loudly so they're generating lots of aerosols, mm. then that's a high transmission rate, uh, risk environment. And uh, if that's occurring more frequently, then that's uh, maybe one of the driving factors behind what we're observing, that uh, we have a slight uptick uh, in case counts uh, in different provinces in Canada, and that seems to affect uh, younger age groups uh, uh, more, more frequently. Are we learning a lot right now? Like for your line of work, is this also a fascinating time? I think every line of work in science is just going bonkers right now. It's, it's sort of an all-hands-on-deck situation. Um, so we're seeing more data accumulate than ever imaginable before, and uh, everyone's having to innovate uh, constantly. So, yeah, it's a kind of exciting and, uh, um, you know, exhilarating time to be uh, in science. Right. So much, right, information coming your way. Art, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much. This is Mornings with Simi. There have been some beautiful pictures of the comet Neowise in the last week or so. I haven't been lucky enough to see it, but I know plenty of other people have. And if you still want to try to catch a glimpse of it, your best bet essentially is tonight. And then after that, uh, you probably won't be around because it won't be around for 6,800 years. So yeah, if you want to get a good look at it, uh, tonight is probably your last best chance. Nikki Reitmeyer talks to us about why this comet had so many stargazing people and scientists talking. There is a new comet somewhere out there above us tonight. It is the brightest in the skies of the Northern Hemisphere for a quarter of a century. It's called, as you may know, Comet Neowise, after a NASA telescope that first spotted it in March. It'll be around for a few more days, and if you don't manage to see it this time around, there's always next time in about 7,000 years. Comet Neowise. It's been catching the eye of stargazers and scientists all around the world. But where did it come from? And how much longer will you be able to catch a glimpse? As you might have heard in the news, this three-mile-wide comet is passing through the night sky this month. And you'll be able to look up and see it with binoculars, telescopes, and if you're lucky, even the naked eye. Joy Ng is the host of NASA Science Live. Comet Neowise was first discovered in March of this year, and it's been putting on a grand show. It's covered in soot left over from the formation of our solar system about 4.6 billion years ago. And as comets orbit close to the sun, they heat up and spew gases and dust in a glowing head. And this material is what forms the tail that you see stretching across the sky. But how was Comet Neowise first discovered, and why is it called Neowise anyways? 
Joe Massaro is the NEOI's deputy principal investigator from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So Comet NEOWISE was first picked up by the NEOWISE survey at the end of March. So NEOWISE is an acronym that stands for the Near-Earth Object Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. And this is an infrared space telescope orbiting the Earth in the low Earth orbit, constantly scanning the sky in the thermal infrared, looking for asteroids and comets that come close to the Earth. And so this comet was first picked up at the end of March as part of our automated processing. And so as the data came in, it goes through an automated system that tries to identify moving objects and sends it to our team to review. And so as part of that review, we were looking at it and said, hey, this looks like a comet. We can see a clear fuzzy cloud around it. And so we reported that to the Minor Planet Center saying, here's a new object and it looks to be cometary. Now, right after we discovered it, we saw that it was going to have a close pass with the sun around July 3rd and that there was a chance that it could become very bright. And so we were really crossing our fingers and we got really lucky that it turned out to be a spectacular sight. So what makes this comet so unique? The fact that we can see it is really what makes it unique. Emily Kramer is the co-investigator on the NEOWISE science team. It's quite rare for a comet to be bright enough that we can see it with the naked eye or even with just binoculars. Uh, the last time we had a comet that was this bright was Comet Hale-Bopp back in 1995 and 1996. So it's been quite a while and it's exciting to be able to see this one in, in this way now. If you want to catch a glimpse of NEOWISE, try to get away from the city lights. Just after sunset, look below the Big Dipper in the northwest part of the sky. You'll be able to see it better with binoculars or a small telescope. But if you do want to see it, you'll have to act soon. Wednesday, July 22nd, this is the closest Neowise will get to planet Earth, just a mere 64 million miles away. And it'll only get further away from now on through the rest of the month. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Oh, I'd love to catch a glimpse of Nia Wise. Nikki Reitmeyer is with us now. What is this fascination we have, Nikki? Oh, this fascination with space. I know yes. that you're a big space junkie as well. I think there's just something so cool with being able to look off into the night sky and think, wow, it goes on just forever into, you know, this this darkness, this unknown. So and mysterious. When we, yeah, when we catch a glimpse of something that comes close to us, you know, be it 64 million miles away, kind of close, but when a comet like Neowise comes close, it's kind of cool to think of our interaction with space and it, it becomes something I think that's a little bit easier to to maybe visualize, something a little yes. bit less less abstract. Have you seen, I, oh, sorry, no. you already said you haven't seen it. I yeah, have not. Either. I would you like to, I'd city. love to be it's able hard. to do that, but of course, and not only that, I go to bed before the sun is down. Well, so <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it too, right? <laughs> so I'd have to like set my alarm, get up in the middle of the night maybe to check out Neowise. Maybe when you wake up in the morning, you'd have a chance of being able to see Neil. More likely, at some point. yes. Hey, uh, interesting little fact. On this day in space history, so on this day in 1972, the Russian space probe Vernera 8 landed on Venus. And we actually learned some really fascinating information about Venus that we didn't previously know. It took about 117 days to get to Venus. And when it got there, it only lasted for about... 50 minutes on the surface of Venus. Really, really harsh conditions. If you recall some of that high school stuff that you learned about yes. the planet visit, Venus, it has that atmospheric pressure, which is 92 times what we feel here on Earth. So this would be the equivalent of basically being about 3,000 feet underneath the sea, that kind Oof. of pressure. 
And on top of that, it also has an incredibly hot surface with a mean temperature of 464 degrees Celsius. So this poor little probe only lasted 50 minutes on the planet oh. Venus. However, it learned some really interesting information about, about the atmosphere. So as you know, Venus is covered in this really thick, sort of toxic cloud, this thick atmosphere. However, what we learned was the clouds around it actually hover at a very high altitude. And then once you get closer to the surface, it actually clears out quite a bit. So that was huh. some of the sig significant information I tell that you. has since made it into many high school textbooks. I was going to say the 70s, man. They were all about space exploration. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So we were just talking with Vaughn Palmer about this, about restaurants and bars and the industry itself. We know they're having so much trouble just staying afloat in this COVID-19 pandemic. But now on top of that, you have this issue of some of them trying to reopen, some of them playing by the rules, a few of them not causing problems. So how do we make this work? So joining us now to talk more about this is Jeff Guinard, who's the, from the Alliance of Beverage Serving Licensees. Jeff, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. I can imagine this must be such a tough time for your industry. Yeah, it's really challenging. And um, I don't want anybody to have the impression that just because bars and restaurants are open and you, you see people going in that uh, these places are you know, extremely busy or they're, they're making profit. Uh, everybody's had to reduce their capacity to um, accommodate the, the necessary social distancing and maximum group sizes. And uh, our, our stats show that about two-thirds of operators out there right now are not um, out of the red yet. They're still losing money every day and they're they're open to keep people employed and provide service, but it's it's really tough out there. Yeah, what do you think though when you hear stories of places that are not following the rules, that are not having social distancing and you know, you see the pictures even on social media? Yeah, for sure. So I've been out uh, far past my bedtime on Granville Street in Yaletown here in Vancouver and uh, I have to say the vast majority of operators are doing an incredible job and during extremely difficult circumstances. But I want to give people the impression that the rules are not being followed. Uh, I've been out there and I promise you that they, they are. Um, what is actually happening in some cases is, especially later in the evenings, you find some customers seem to uh, think that alcohol protects them from the coronavirus oh, or boy. they forget about the rules. And uh, a lot of our operators are having to spend a tremendous amount of time reminding patrons you cannot mingle between tables. And I know you're excited to see your friends. You know, we've all been locked down during this period and we want to go out again. But uh, you have to abide by the rules and you can't forget just because it's, it's past midnight. Um, and uh, even when, you know, I've been to some establishments where they have uh, markers on the exterior, if there happens to be a line at a, at a club or something, which is operating more like a lounge than a nightclub. There's no real nightclubs operating. But you can see the markers on, on the sidewalk where you have to stand the bouncer has to go up and down the line repeatedly, reminding people to stay distant. Um, and we so having, our patrons. So they're having to enforce this instead, right? So I can imagine how that would be very challenging because at some point people who've been drinking really don't want to listen to you. Yeah, I mean, generally patrons are pretty good. Uh, every once in a while I uh, have to deal with it. But honestly, we're, we're just ejecting people who don't follow the rules. I mean, uh, this is a state of emergency still. This is a pandemic and uh, no business owner is going to let someone in who could you know, is already not listening to them and how they should behave. Uh, so we, we are all united in our, our desire to operate responsibly in this period. Um, so yeah, I think the onus is on customers, and I'm, I'm not sure why uh, any, or how anybody could claim they're not aware of the rules. I mean, every single nightclub, restaurant, bar, etc., has them posted, so they're available online, they've been articulated repeatedly by Dr. Bonnie Henry, a provincial health officer. Uh, so yeah, we really need our patrons to, to join us in the right. fight. My concern long-term about this is, um, it, you know, the 
at a, a bar or restaurant, at least we have staff who can tell you and remind you to, to abide by the rules. You see the spike in cases that's happening with public gatherings and suddenly if a few dozen people operating or um, gathering together in parks and uh, that's clearly offside, right? And no one's enforcing that, but you shouldn't have to enforce that. We should be able to rely on the personal sense of responsibility from British Columbians uh, to not have those sorts well, of gatherings. Should. You should, yeah, and yet that doesn't. We know that's not happening, right? Uh, not sufficiently, no, and that that's frustrating. I think that's uh, that's a challenge. So then, Jeff, what would help at this point? You, you know, I'm sure this is a very stressful time for bars and restaurants. What would help? Do you need more rules? Do you need more, do you, or do you just need people to pay attention? Yeah, I don't think that having additional rules in the bars is helpful. I mean, um, perhaps some clear guidelines around contact tracing, so we can you know take everybody's information in cases and outbreak. We can. You know, track back a little bit easier. Uh, but ultimately, it's up to British Columbians. Uh, if you want these these establishments to survive, they have to abide by the rules. Um, and if you ask a restaurant or bar what they actually need, it comes down a lot of times to uh, like a working capital grant or making sure we can extend the federal supports, things like the wage subsidy. And uh, that's actually more vital to their business uh, in the long term because it's, uh, they're, they're massively impacted financially by this. And um, we, we think that, well, in our stats, about 50% of uh, restaurants and bars out there don't know if they're going to even make it the next couple of months financially. So that's, that's right. the big concern. And, uh, but from the public perspective and just from consumer safety, yeah, we need, we need our patrons to pay more attention. And I hate to say it, but it's in a lot of cases that our younger patrons are coming in as well. Um, that, uh, that seem to have forgotten the rules in some cases. So the spiking cases should be a, a real warning sign to folks. Uh, we're going to keep doing everything we can and we need British Columbians to step up and help us in it. All right. We will put that message out there. Jeff, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Have a wonderful morning. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, concerns first started to be heightened recently around COVID-19 when we heard about the number of cases rising in Kelowna. We now know there's something like, what, 60 cases and counting of COVID-19 that have been connected to exposures that have been happening in Kelowna earlier this month. Some businesses in that community are once again being forced to close their doors, struggling. And they've been struggling already for months. So I'm sure it's had quite an impact. And that's why we wanted to talk with the mayor of Kelowna about that. So Colin Basrin joins us now, the mayor of Kelowna. Thank you very much for being here. No problem. Thank you very much for having me on. What kind of an impact has this had, this news of this, you know, cluster of cases in Kelowna? Well, I guess it de- depends who you talk to. Uh, certainly uh, from a local perspective, um, it's had an impact, particularly local business owners who have uh, in some instances seen uh, a reduction of uh, shoppers and people uh, coming to visit their stores, uh, people choosing to uh, be uh, more cautious, similar to their they were in phase two and uh, even before that. Um, but then, uh, you, you know, you talk to some residents as well who have uh, and continue to see an influx of visitors from elsewhere um, and uh, who are upset that we continue to see visitors to our community wondering why, um, you know, city council, although we don't really have a, a lot of control over this per se, um, and, and, and then in particular questions to Dr. Bonnie Henry as to why she's continuing to allow uh, visitors from within the province uh, as well as from uh, out of province. And, uh, and so there's just, um, yeah, a lot of questions and, and frustration by some, and, uh, and then others understand that, uh, you know, we're trying to walk a line here between, uh, obviously, first and foremost, this is a healthcare care uh, crisis, 
but also uh, an economic one as well, in that uh, there are a lot of people in our community who are tourism dependent uh, to keep a roof, roof over their heads and then food on the table. So uh, I think Dr. Bonnie Henry thus far has done a good job of walking that line, um, and she's going to continue to monitor this situation and, and, and go from there. But it does sound like that's a tough one for your office, for City Hall, to deal with. I'm sure you're getting lots of phone calls about this. Well, like I say, it's, it's tough for everybody. I don't uh, envy Dr. Henry at all. And, um, and so, yes, we're getting lots of calls, but we're also, again, um, being asked by some business owners to, you know, stay the course. So we're hearing everything from we're doing too much to we're not doing enough. And, uh, again, right. it's trying to strike a balance. So it's, we're down if we do and down if we don't. Now, what about the private gatherings, uh, Mayor Basserin? Because that obviously was flagged as a concern as well, that there have been parties, gatherings, houseboats. Do you share a concern for that? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I think uh, there's, um, you know, I guess my message to your listeners, particularly those who plan to visit here, is, is a couple of things. Is When you're coming to visit Kelowna, um, don't come here to make new friends. Uh, come here to visit the friends that you were specifically had planned on uh, spending time with. Know who's in your circle, but don't expand it beyond that. Um, and, and act as if this is your home too. So please don't come here and, 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 and party without a care in the world and pretend like this is a, a COVID-free bubble, which we know now it's not. Um, and also just assume that if you are coming here, that the, uh, the party or the group of people next to you, somebody in that group has it. So take the necessary precautions um, that you would if that was in fact the case. And, uh, and I think that if we do those things and that the people visiting here um, act in a responsible manner and adhere to the orders and, and recommendations of Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, I think that we can have a good summer. Uh, not a normal summer, certainly, but we can have a good summer where we can balance the, uh, the rights uh, of mm-hmm. our residents as well as those who really want to spend some time here. So you want people to treat their trip to Kelowna as they would treat their own neighborhood? Absolutely, 100%. And what we've found is I think um, most visitors have done that, um, but not everybody. And I think we've seen the results of that uh, in light of this recent outbreak. And so if we can all, um, I guess uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry continues to say, use your travel manners. Uh, if we do that, um, this should be fine. But if we don't, uh, we will likely have to go back to phase two, potentially. Uh, and that's something that nobody wants. Well, Mayor Bastron, thank you very much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time. That is Colin Bastron, the mayor of Kelowna, giving a message to people out there that if you are going to go on a holiday or a trip to Kelowna, treat it as you would your own home. Stick to your circle. Don't go up there to make new friends. And listen, that is not something that a tourist hotbed wants to say to people, but they have to. There's something like 60 cases of COVID-19 now connected to exposures in Kelowna. Large gatherings, parties, get-togethers. So they have to put that message out there. This is Mornings with Simi. This morning about how tough it is right now for restaurants, bars, nightclubs to navigate what's happening with COVID-19. There are calls for tougher rules, more inspections, crackdown. We heard from the Alliance of Beverage Licensees saying, though, they need help from young people. They want more younger people to follow the rules. To talk more about all of this, Ian Tossenson joins us now, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Hi, Ian. Hey, Simi, how you doing? I am good, thank you. So what do you think? Does the industry need more rules? Because it sounds like Dr. Uh, Bonnie Henry's getting ready for that this week. I think there's, yeah, I think there's sort of three things here. I think, number one, uh, we're going to try to institute with the government a uh, social influencing campaign 
to the sort of younger demographic that's you know having a real trouble trying to trying to get their heads around you know this freedom and the fact that we still have a, a an awfully serious pandemic around uh, in this world and it's really serious and so that's one side. The other side is we've got a group of uh, sixty restaurants which were our advisory group who basically wrote the opening plans, uh, which I think is a world-class plan. And we're going to go back to them in the next couple of days and say, what else can we do here? I think it's um, we need to tighten up and make sure that our protocols are absolutely being followed. They're really good protocols. Um, you know, we were just talking to a restaurant group this morning. They take the temperature of their staff. They do a declaration on every shift. So we can tighten this up ourselves. We've got way too much to lose, Simi. Uh, yeah. and an industry right now that is just rocked financially and the future is is not that bright right now. And if we don't do this right, um, we've got even bigger problems. So there's a lot at stake here. Yeah, I know. And that's what I was thinking too. And you absolutely nailed it there. What I'm thinking, you know, we've got these anecdotal stories. We just had a caller tell us about a downtown restaurant that she went to that, yes, when she went in, it was very nice. They had, you know, spaced out. They had notes on the table saying that this table's empty. But as the place started to fill up, they started taking those off the tables and let people sit there. So it would it not be behoove restaurants to make sure they're also following the rules. That's, and that story, if it's true, well, I'm sure it is true, but you know, it, that's so wrong. And that is so what we don't stand for. And honest, you know, if any of your listeners want to get a hold of us, bcrfa.com, and, and, and point out the restaurants that they don't feel comfortable with, we'll deal with it. We'll make sure that WorkSafe goes in and, and counsels that restaurant. Good. I believe that 99% of the restaurants are trying to do a good job, but we'll out any restaurant and I'll, I'll be the first person to say, close it down if they're putting anybody at risk here because it's not just their patrons. It's an entire $15 billion industry with 200,000 people. It's way, way, way too important to have a few renegades that decide that for the convenience of some short-term gains, they don't mm-hmm. want to play by the rules. So. so where can people get a hold of you then? Like, so where do they email? Do they, like, what do they do? Yeah. So I uh, wanted you email me at, or just info at bcrfa.com. bcrfa.com. Info and at, I okay. I guarantee you we'll get back to you and we'll deal with it. And I don't, I don't out people for the sake of outing them, please, but not you, but your listeners. Yes. Um, but we'll certainly, you know, it's in our best interest to hear from people and how we can be better. We definitely want to make sure that we, uh, we we go forward, not backwards. So true. Listen, Ian, thank you so much for that. That's super helpful. Thanks, Simi. Have a good day. You too. That's Ian Tossenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. So you heard him. If you're somewhere and you see the rules not being followed, if you're at a restaurant or a bar or something like that, Email them and tell them because it behooves the entire industry to make sure those rules are being followed. It's a big concern for them right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It has been one of the most difficult situations around this COVID-19 pandemic. The fact that it has forced the isolation of so many loved ones who are in a long-term care home, just being able to visit them, celebrate birthdays with them, anniversaries, occasions, just being able to regularly visit them, all of that has gone by the wayside. And we worry about those loved ones. So it's been, there's been a high priority to finding out some kind of way to make those visits happen again. So there is a new program that is hoping to work towards that. Uh, let's talk more about it. Nikki Reitmeyer is with us this morning. Hi, Nikki. 
Hi, Simi. Yeah, this comes a, a great relief to families who so desperately want a better way to visit their loved ones who are in care homes. So a statement went out that reads in response to changes announced last month by the Provincial Health Officer on Visitations and Long-Term Care and Assisted Living, Safe Care BC, in collaboration with Family Caregivers of British Columbia, has developed an online COVID-19 orientation for families and friends wanting to support loved ones in care. So essentially, what this means is they're creating a program that can help you get the tools that you need to be able to visit your loved one uh, with better competency. So it goes on to yeah. say to address concerns of safety of, for residents and workers, as well as friends and family of those in care, those people would become COVID competent, okay. it reads. All yeah, right. so it says that you take this easy-to-access orientation, you print off a record of compliance, and then you complete a site-specific safety orientation at the care home or assisted living residence. Okay, we're going to find out more about this right now. Thanks for letting us know about it, Nikki. Mm-hmm. That is our Nikki Reitmeyer. So yeah, what are the details? How do you become COVID competent? For more on this now, we're joined by Jen Lyle, who is the CEO of Safe Care BC. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. What does it mean to become COVID competent? Yeah, well, really what we're doing with these modules is we're helping empower family members and friends of those who have loved ones in long-term care to be safe when they're coming on site to support their loved one. And so our goal with this is really to provide anybody who's going into long-term care or assisted living with sort of a basic understanding of the safety precautions required to help avoid uh, accidentally introducing COVID-19 into a care home or an assisted living setting. And so what that does is people coming in will then be able to do their site-specific safety orientation and um, they'll just be able to be safer in, in their practices when they're coming in to support their loved one. Okay, so this kind of standardizes, like are some care homes already doing this, but is this just going to standardize it? Yeah, so we do have care homes that have been welcoming family members back into uh, the care home. And in, in many cases, there's been instances where we have still had essential visits coming in to long-term care throughout this period. But what it does is it does provide that standardization. Um, and it also helps uh, people who are family members or friends to understand not just the precautions they need to take when they're going into a care home, for example, but things that they can actually do in their day-to-day life to keep themselves safe. Right. Okay. So what, what can you give us an example of what some of these um, things are that people need to know about? Sure. So obviously the thing that's a lot, that's top of mind for a lot of people when you're going into long-term care these days is the need to um, practice things like physical distancing, to do things like proper hand hygiene. I know most people think, yeah, yeah, I know how to wash my hands, but uh, you know, there's some important steps that need to be taken. Also things around PPE donning and doffing. And then on understanding too, sort of the nuances around how COVID-19 can spread and what people can do to reduce the risk of exposure, not just when they're walking into a care home, but also too in the community. Because again, we know that there's only one way that COVID-19 gets into a long-term care home and that's through the front door. So there's a bunch of different steps people can take. And the goal of these modules is to help provide people with that baseline understanding so that they're empowered to be safe when they're going in to support their loved one. Right. So there's no excuses. There's information there and you have to go through those modules before you can walk in that front door. Well, right now what we're saying is this is a voluntary thing. So we're not saying that you have to take these modules, but it's a tool out there. And we know that care homes are really struggling with staffing shortages. We know that family members are really eager to get back in to support their loved ones. So that's why partnering with Family Caregivers of BC made so much sense so that we can get this out there and put the information in the hands of those who need it. Ah, okay. So you would like a lot of people to take this. 
I would love a lot of people to take okay. this. Okay. <laughs> so tell me again, so how long does it take? Is it overly complicated? Like, is it easy to find? It's, it's super short. We've designed it to that you can pick it up, stop and start it as you need to. So it's available on the safecarebclearningspace.ca. Um, right now, with the funding from Family Caregivers of British Columbia, we're able to offer it for free for the first 5,000 people who sign up. And we're hoping that we'll be able to secure more funding in the future. Um, but um, you just go on to safecarebclearningspace.ca. The only thing you need is an email address. Then you can enroll in the course, and it's just called COVID-19 Social Visitation Essentials, and it's live. All right. We will definitely recommend that. Jen, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. That is so important to know. That's Jen Lyle, Safe Care BC CEO. So take that module, get that online orientation done so that you can become COVID competent. It will go a long way towards keeping people in long-term care homes safe. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking a lot this morning about bars, restaurants, nightclubs, and the concern that things are perhaps not as like rule following as they should be when it comes to preventing COVID-19 there. There have been calls for the rules to be tougher. Dr. Bonnie Henry is likely to address that uh, sometime this week. Uh, But the industry itself is saying we need everybody to buy in. I mean, we talked to Ian Tossenson about that from the Restaurant and Food Services Association. And they said, listen, if you're a customer and you go into one of these establishments and you look around and you see that the rules are not being followed, They want you to tell them so that they can follow up with that restaurant because it behooves the industry right now to make sure the rules are being followed because they need to make sure they are seen as upholding the rules so that the industry can get back on its feet. So what about WorkSafe BC's role in all of this? Well, joining us now is Al Johnson, the head of prevention services at WorkSafe BC. Al, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. Good morning, Simi. Have you been hearing complaints from people about establishments, bars, nightclubs, restaurants that aren't following the rules? We have had some complaints, certainly. Some people calling our information line that's available to call 24-7 to let us know what's going on out there. We've heard that, um, you know, as things get busier, um, some of the employers out there are having challenges being true to their plans. Okay, so then what happens when somebody does call your hotline? So, you know, we started uh, weeks ago now, and we've done over 1,200 inspections in restaurants alone. Um, And what we're finding is that for the most part, employers are following the guidelines, the best practices. They've got COVID safety plans in place. They've worked with their own workers to develop those plans. So that's a good piece of information. That's a good, solid start. Um, What's now is happening as things get a little busier and and as the public gets a little more familiar with going out and wanting to be in those establishments, then the employers are having some challenges staying true to those plans, making sure that they're vigilant and those plans are working. And so what we're doing now is um, we we are trying to address that by making sure that those plans are being tweaked if they need to be tweaked or changed or modified. They are dynamic. They should be fluid. Um, They've learned some practices that worked and some that didn't work so well, so they can make improvements there. But we're really wanting to make sure that they're staying vigilant to what they need to do. Are enough inspections being done, though? 
we are doing a lot of inspections. We obviously can't be everywhere, nor nor do we need to be really. It's a matter of employers know what needs to happen. It's their obligation to keep workplaces healthy and safe and prevent um, uh, their their workers from being exposed to hazards on the job, including COVID. Um, and, and so they're working hard to do that. And, and we're out there to, to hold them accountable to that. Uh, when, a, when a concern is expressed to our information line, when a complaint comes in, we follow up on those to make sure that there is closure to that issue, if you will. Um, and, and again, we just need to continue to uh, message through the associations, like right. you mentioned earlier, through our own website and through our own resources, that this is something employers cannot relax on. Now, we've heard from one restaurant anonymously that, you know, suggested to us, well, listen, it's not our fault. WorkSafe BC isn't doing enough. They're not enforcing the rules. Is it your job to enforce the rules or do you think the onus is on these restaurants to make sure they're following the rules? So the onus is always on the employer. The obligation under our act and regulation is the employer has that responsibility and obligation to protect their workers in the workplace from hazards and from risks. Uh, and that applies to COVID. We're out there to keep them accountable to that and hold them to that obligation. Um, in this particular case, with COVID and, and everything that's going on out there, there's a dual role between the regulators. We certainly, WorkSafe BC certainly is there with our mandate to protect workers in the workplace, and then public health is there to protect the public in those establishments and in public places. So we work closely with public health, uh, but there is certainly an overlap and a, and and a a line of uh, demarcation, if you will. Are there more rules coming this week? Dr. Henry has suggested that there might be. I am not sure, to be honest with you, uh, whether there will be additional uh, orders or, or, or directives from public health regarding those establishments. If there are, then those will be reflected on our website and the guidelines that have been created and the best practices that are there and available. And so people can see those directly. If, there are the, if those do come to be, they can see them directly from public health. They can also see them reflected on our website. Where do you think the disconnect is, Al, or where the problem is? We're getting these outbreaks. Are people not paying attention? Like, where do you think this is coming from? I think it's multi-dynamic, uh, really. There's a lot of factors at play. People, people, you know, it's been a long time dealing with COVID. People have felt constricted. I think just people want to get out and socialize and want to be like it used to be, but, but it's not like that anymore. And so this new normal people need to get used to. There are rules, quote-unquote, rules in place and protocols in place, and, and people, I think, understand those and know what they are. Um, but sometimes, especially where there where there's worker and and public overlap in a workplace, uh, things can get relaxed a little bit. And so, again, our message is be true to your plans, ensure that your plans are working for that particular establishment, the workers and the employer, and uh, reassess if you need to, uh, and be vigilant. Stay the course. Let's keep these plans. Let's keep these protocols in practice. All right. So once again, what is that hotline, Mel? Uh, our hotline number is available on our website. Okay. It's, uh, um, it's available 24-7, and uh, I just, off the top of my head, don't, don't worry about the it. number. So they should just go to WorkSafeBC, and if they you know file that, call, give them a call on that hotline number that's on the WorkSafeBC website, and you do respond to those. We certainly do. Okay, good to know. Al, thank the, you. The, the number is one eight 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 six two one seven two three three. Oh, you were fast. Okay, thanks, Al. Okay, you bet.